Hi friends, this is Ian Khan and you're listening to The Ian Khan Show. Today is a special Aftershock episode and I'm speaking with Wolfgang Fengler, who is the World Bank's leading economist in finance, competitiveness and innovation. He's really well published and he's co-authored Delivering Aid Differently in Africa's Economic Boom. He's also launched Population.io as well as WorldPoverty.io, two real-time big data models. The German weekly Der Spiegel calls him a big data virtuoso. Let's speak with Wolfgang. Wolfgang, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. I am so excited to have you here. Wolfgang Wengler is a world-renowned economist. You work with the World Bank. Tell us about the world in a few minutes, but I want to lay down the context. You're a contributor to Aftershock, and this is a book that our good friend John Schroeder has put together. The world's top futurists have come together, and they've written about the world. They've written about what tomorrow will be. But most importantly, we all are talking about Toffler. Toffler's uh, Future Shock, 50 years after future shock where the world is right now. So let's talk about the world right now. Wolfgang, tell us where you are and what is the state of the world around you? I live in Europe. I am from Germany initially. I had the luxury to live in four continents in the US, in in uh, Asia, in Indonesia, and in Africa. And then when I had the chance to go to Europe, I wanted to take it and to use that from a global experience. And uh, we'll talk more in detail, but just in short, what people sometimes underestimate, but you and Sintofla have not, is that the world is actually moving quite fast and it's moving faster in the positive direction and too many unfortunately look at the headlines and too few look at the trend lines and if you look at the trend lines you may sometimes see a slightly different view of the world uh, maybe sometimes a bit more boring for the headliners but actually more exciting for all of us who work in development so you've written extensively about you know you work with data a lot you're an economist you work with all kinds of data not just you know data about finances and money there's so much going on in the world now in particular you've written a lot about where are we heading with respect to longevity where is population heading where are uh, the global population where it's heading the decline in the number of people who are alive every single year you've written about disease how it affects young children and what are some of the bigger challenges that um, you know humanity has on itself uh, on its shoulders. Tell us a little bit about that. Where are we with respect to maybe living longer or the global population? Like, how do you encapsulate that? Excellent intro. Thank you. You and your viewers do this also at home or with your friends or at events. Just ask simple questions. One is, how many people are we in the world? I always ask them this question in my talk. And roughly 90% of the answers are wrong. People will say 7 billion, which is not so wrong, but it is an old number. It's six, seven years ago. We are now approaching 7.8 billion. That's the latest estimate. So we are soon getting towards 8 billion. So a world that uh, those who were living at the time of Edwin Toffler were a bit scared about, but we're still there. And despite other challenges, and obviously we have many in these days, the world keeps growing and it will keep go towards 10 billion. If it will reach 10 billion or not, that's still a broader different debate. But um, the main point I'd like to make is people are scared of a world of rapid population growth, but we have gone through that. And we, including you and I, we live better lives than our parents and our they live better lives than our grandparents. And that has to do because people are alive longer. And that's a very good thing. So those who are scared of population growth, I would urge them to say, don't scare. And even if you don't like to be around surrounded by more people, you can't stop it anymore because it's a very important fact people underestimate and don't understand often, unfortunately, is population growth is not driven by children. The number of children today is 2 billion. The number of children 20 years ago was 2 billion. And I'm sure you'll guess right. The number of children in 20 years will be 2 billion. Mm -hmm. 
it's a flat line. That means the growth we're experiencing is because of you and myself and because of all the viewers who are above 18. It's because of people, of adults. And we don't want to stop that. Otherwise, some of us would need to commit suicide. We don't want that. So it's good that adults are more adults because the people live longer. And that is a very continuous trend that started with the time that Edwin Toffler wrote a Future Shock and it will continue the next decade. And then when somebody will reach 100, will not be a surprise anymore. You may remember when you were a child, somebody that read in the newspaper, wow, there's somebody reaching 100 years. Today, I'm sure you may already know somebody, at least somebody knows somebody who has reached 100. It's not that normal. And for our children, it will be very normal then. So that's, I think, the, the, the digression we will live in. So that's, I think, my big picture um, on global demographics. I'm happy to go a bit into the, the disease element and the, the other shift that you just highlighted. Thank you. I want to ask you about a few different things. And I know we can be here for days and days and days and because this is such an interesting topic and you're the world's most renowned expert in, in talking about this. I want to talk about a concern that as people we might have is I think that people are afraid about this population growth because they feel or we feel that the world is not going to be enough, right? Things, we're going to run out of food, we're going to run out of, I don't know, shelter, urban centers of cities will all of a sudden be competing with each other. And I think there's a misconception there that not everybody lives in a city like Berlin or a congested city like New York, urban centers that are vertically developed. I think there's plenty of space around in the world. We all can live really nicely and freely, have access to the resources that we need, have plenty of food. But there's, I believe there's an imbalance of resources, whether it's finely produced foods, it's how we live. Help us understand that. Why is why why are people at war with each other? Because at the end of the day, it's all about resources. Why are we killing each other? Why can't we get along? Because there's plenty of resources available. Isn't that right? Well, uh, we all you ask you have great many events and podcasts, Greg, because this is I think the overarching question of development and human societies in general. Um, I'll pick up on a few uh, points you had, especially food and urbanization. I think the first thing, again, that's when we are looking around and looking at the TVs and obviously the, the big problems, they, we don't uh, balance it properly with the big opportunities and the good developments. Obviously, we do read about the COVID death in New York, rightly so, but we don't read about the fact that there may be 5,000 Vietnamese who have escaped poverty today, which is also worth a headline, but it just keeps on going and keeps on advancing. And there is probably a 10,000 Vietnamese who are not hungry tonight uh, compared to a year ago. So those are big shifts that we're not noticing. And my own my general plea is that we have this big picture and we highlight some of the bad things that happen, but then also look at the good things. And if you look at together, it's, I think it's undeniable. The world is better today than it was at the year 2000. And that was better than the year 1980 or 1970 when we wrote the book. There's fewer people hungry today. There is fewer people in poverty. There is more people living more prosperous and dynamic life in the middle class, despite all the problems we, we have been facing. So just using this uh, this example of food that you mentioned, obviously the end of food has been predicted by others, including by Malthus, who thought that you know we're running out of food and we will all uh, you know be in some of these, these apocalyptic announcements have been made by many, and they'll still be there. They have always been wrong. The world still keeps turning. We are still uh, feeding ourselves. And the main point is, as you said, there is enough food out there. So it's a question of how you organize it. And there is more food today than there used to ever be. And if you think of food, and you can do the same with transport, if you own a car, it's probably now standing outside. Very inefficient, a car should move, and you should share the car, and with driverless car, that will change. The same goes with food. If you think of the food that's being produced in some part of Brazil or Africa until it gets 
uh, until it enters your plate uh, in the evening, your dining table, it will have been a lot of wasted along the way because the logistics doesn't work properly, something's rot in the field. There's so much more food out there that we don't eat or that in the restaurant itself or in the supermarket it gets thrown away. If we organize everything better, there's plenty. There are probably food for 20 billion people and we'll not uh, overcome much than 10 billion. So it's not a worry. The worry is not food. The worry, as you said, is organization and then the resulting issues that come with that. But again, important to understand that things have been better now than it had been in the past. Now, conflict, there's no conflict over resources, as you as you said, research-rich countries. And I live myself in Kenya next to Somalia, um, which has its own deep challenges of, of, a, of a failed state. So that, as long as there's underdevelopment and as long as there's these countries that are having major challenges, there will be conflict um, at a societal level, at a country level, and at other levels. But again, it's important to note, surprisingly, some may not notice, the world is still more peaceful than it was 20, 30 years ago. Lots of conflicts that have stopped now or countries that have gone in a positive direction. I've worked myself in Uzbekistan, there's a case of Ethiopia. All those countries that we don't forget a little bit on passing because we often focus a bit on the negative. Amazing, amazing. I love it. I love it. But this is so intense. Now, I have read that there is a stat that we waste about one third of all the food that we produce. I think it was from the UK, the stat, that one third of all the food that is produced from agriculture, from all these processes, through supply chains, it's, it's at the grocery store, it's cooked. One third of it is wasted, right? So behind that, every resource that you've put, it means that resource has gone wasted. I think there's a problem of more of efficiency. There's also the challenge that, um, you know, different governments, politics, media, a lack of awareness, all of these are challenging because they do not paint the right picture. And I think if you really empower people with the right information, they build the right habits, they do the right thing every single day. I think we, the world will be a much, much better place with less amount of stress. And I don't think we we, we stress upon that as much. Uh, we, just, we just are running in a panic mode. And what COVID-19 has done to this world in 2020 is put a stop at everything. It has literally halted, put a, put big brakes on everybody and said, just stop, stop doing what you're doing and get a reality check on life. What do you think about COVID-19? Well, I have excellent points, uh, Ian, you're making. And uh, I like the way that, you know, put the, you know, put the brakes on the panic mode. And, and just to, if I may add to that, uh, before I go to COVID-19, one issue I think that, you know, and I don't blame the extremists, they obviously have their own agendas and it's very easy to make them noise out of a data points, but also, you know, I think that your show makes a great contribution to this. You need to make the normal news more exciting and to really have not just data scientists and economists and statisticians play with data, but everybody. We should play with data like we play with Lego. And once we can do that, then we have also, you know, then it's much easier to debate because often in these debates, it gets very deep into philosophical issues, but based on the wrong facts. And if the facts were just there and right and simple to follow, then it'd be much better off, which relates to COVID as well. I'm working with some teams who have done some, some analysis and some initial analysis both on what it means for the economy and what it means for health, some of the two key fundamental issues. And um, and what obviously is some of the whole underlying reason why we all had to put the brakes on and had to, and we have put it on is that concept that you talk about and many of the contributors on exponentiality. The number of ill people, even the number of dead, dead people, despite the, you know, the, the suffering that goes with this, is very, very low now if you compare to any other deaths. There's no new daily tracking of the car accidents 
symptoms of the dementia, the disease of diabetes, all things are much more dramatic. Having said that, if you have an exponential curve, then you go very quickly from 5,000 to half a million. That's just, uh, you know, a little more than 10 doubling. Then you are at a very large number. And that's, I think, why why we see, uh, we're seeing what we, we have been experiencing. Now, but again, this comes to the core of my article in Future Shock. It's important to put things in perspective. So if assuming in a very negative scenario, 1 million deaths this year in the world would be on top of 60 million deaths. So it is important, but it's not the big killer. The big killer would still be heart disease, cancer, car accidents, HIV would be in the same category as um, as COVID, then uh, suicide is around the same category. So those are my plea to people out there and everybody else interested in this subject is let's do the same what we monitor, what we see with COVID on John Hopkins' website every day. Let's do that with all diseases or all causes because then you can address them much more. No, not, obviously not every disease is a disaster, right? Eventually we'll all die and probably it's heart disease then, so that's okay. Then I think it's some casualties are on heart disease at all age. That's what, it, what will happen. But so many other diseases, especially in poorer countries, could be uh, cured. And that would be my, my plea for, for how we convert to some of the COVID interest and excitement around data into something much broader. Yeah, thank you so much, Bogdan. That's very interesting. You mentioned a couple of things, and I want to I want to build up upon that. Um, I want to talk about you know the longevity as an example. So first of all, you've got. Uh, let me backtrack a little bit. So we talked about there are many other factors, diseases, challenges, issues that we face in on an everyday basis where the the rate of dying, the rate of death is much much higher than COVID nineteen, right? But, but the amount of attention that COVID nineteen has gained because of how it's progressed, the lack of effort governments have made, media, all of this. It's generally a, a pandemic that's given many people have died in 2020 because of that. And we might feel the effects of COVID-19 for the next one, two, couple of years. I believe we'll, we're going to face the economic impact of COVID-19 for at least five years going from now on. All the bailouts the banks are giving, all the incentives, everything that's happening, it's going to have a cost. And that cost is going to you know, show itself in the next two to five years. As an economist, what is your what's your take on the financial side of the impact that pandemic like COVID-19 creates, where it just shakes everything. It creates panic in global markets. Uh, countries are going um, all into debt and they have to reach out deep into the coffers of something else and help communities grow, help small businesses grow. What's your what's your analysis on the impact of pandemics on, on business and what's your outlook for the next two to five years? Excellent. Point, uh, Ian. I'm working with a team um, also uh, to connect what's called World Data Lab and it's Brookings, uh, Homi Karas, that does these models. And so I refer to some of this, um, as you mentioned. First, clearly, it's uh, not a news to you. This is worse than the global financial crisis. Um, so um, it's the first time, I think, since records have started, the first time the global, what's called the global consumer class, which is basically the global middle class plus the wealthy, the wealthy group, is shrinking this year. So it's the first time ever. It didn't happen in a global financial crisis because Asia basically failed out the world. So all the all the negative and economic experience we had in Europe and the US was compensated by Asia. This time Asia is not running at the same team anymore, but it's still getting positive. So if you take the latest IMF forecast and then uh, include it in a model that includes population growth and other variables, and you assume that things will go better, back to normal, uh, as they seem to be partly in China, then Asia will still basically compensate for a small part 
part what other continents will have will go through. Um, so that's, I think, on, on that broad perspective. But as you say, and that's, again, I think, what the similarity with the global financial crisis is, that will go up dramatically, or at least fortunately, significantly. Um, my home country, Germany, just announced today, it will go up probably by another 10 percentage point of GDP in their medium-term projection. So those are the long-term problematic effects that you highlighted and that we have just to, to accept, to deal with. Now, two glimmers of hope I would have there. One is, um, even though the great global financial crisis was painful to, to many of us, it was no comparison to what our great-grandparents went through in the Great Depression. So, And I'm saying this, there's now tools, and especially from central banks, that were not tested before that actually worked quite well. They're very unconventional tools, including quantitative easing, but they helped to get, in the US especially, but even also part of Europe and the rest of the world, the economies back on track. And so there's this some new financial market experience, you could say, that you can use, including social protection programs in poorer countries, a lot of more improved systems uh, beyond the inefficiencies that we talked to. The second is, and I'm sure I know you talk quite a bit about this in your, I think also today, your show is around how other shifts taking place. So I think, for example, the shift in mobility will be accelerated and we don't need a car anymore. We just need more mobility. Digital health is another one. The idea of a nine to five job, which you and I gave up already, but others not yet. All of those things will change dramatically, I think, with COVID and that will be for the better. Thanks, Wolfgang. Thank you. Thanks so much. I know our time is limited. We just have maybe another few minutes to talk about a couple of things I want to talk about. Uh, you talk a lot about healthcare, right? In your article in Aftershock. And I want to recommend everybody grab a copy of Aftershock Aftershock from uh, wherever it's available. I think it's available on Amazon. It's money worth well spent because you get insights from so many uh, 50 plus different futurists on different aspects of business life, the future. I am really loving reading this book myself. So that's what I can say. First of all, you write a lot about health. You write a lot about longevity. People will live longer as we go on. They'll live longer. And what, what this happened, there's a couple of uh, streams I want to go into. One is technology. Well, how big of a role will technology play in this? Uh, many futurists are talking about, you know, humanity will reach uh, something called an escape velocity in the next 15 to 20 years because of all the strides that technology will make, nanomedicine, nanobots, progressive medicine, and all of that. And we might just be able to expand our lifespans exponentially. I don't know how many years that will be. Do you believe in that or do you think it's unrealistic? We're going to do a quick take on four or five different things. What's your take on that? Humanity reaching escape velocity. How do you think as an economist? I think people underestimate how much it penetrates through the whole world. So I don't see it yet, but I see people living to the hundred and technology will help a lot, including driverless cars. Once we have that, there will be one and a half million deaths less. And just as you use another example, if you think how healthcare is organized now, you go, you go to tons of doctors and you repeat x-rays and there is no AI, there is no even basic housekeeping system of a digital platform, a health platform that itself will identify health risks, will, we have increased awareness to fitness and many other things that people are using that can bring mortality, as I put in the book, mortality down below 65 to zero. I think that would be a great achievement. And that is, in my view, more important than escape velocity. Perfect. Now, what about people going beyond being stuck in circumstances. We see many people are suffering right now in COVID-19. It's something they haven't been able to control. It's something that's happened to us. What can people do to live a better life, to unlock their potential, whether it's you know looking at new careers? What opportunities does the world present from an economic perspective as we go into the future? How do you see people's life changing financially, a better quality of life? What can you share? What should we do? A great, big question, Ian. Maybe just let me 
highlight two aspects. Obviously, one an area you are very active in is the role about relationships. And it's actually much easier to build relationships today. There's other challenges with the, you know, isolation if you're just stuck with your computer as a, as a teenager or uh, older. But it's much easier now, as we do now, connect virtually, you can connect with the uh, your elderly family member virtually. All of this is reduces actually isolation that I, I remember how my grandmother herself was isolated. So that itself is, you can just have many more opportunities for people to contribute thanks to technology, which related to your, your previous question. The second, on a broader macroeconomic perspective, business, uh, and, and again, I, if you look at the long-term trend, and you just look at this num one key number metric I'm watching, the middle class in the world, used to be growing four people per second. Now it's down to close to zero, but it's not negative, and it keeps going up to four people per second next year if, if we see the recovery. That's a lot of people over 10, 20, 30 years. We moved from basically 2 billion people in the middle class in 2000 to 5 billion in 2030. That's a huge business opportunity for huge wealth gainer. And that, but it needs, it needs to have a mindset, a business mindset that is not as grandiose in selling luxury stuff um, to some billionaires and selling them yachts or, or any other type of luxury good, but it's more, more, you know, the, the, the power of the masses and they benefit from it. You benefit as a business, but you need to think of a, of a much larger market in countries you have not maybe worked yet. Yeah. One of the examples that I can think of is Alibaba that, uh, you know, the founder Jack Ma always says that, Hey, I'm going to serve the mom and pop stores. I'm going to serve people who are not online. And I think by doing that in China, Alibaba really had a tremendous amount of growth when they started about 20, 50, 20 years ago. And so that makes perfect sense. There's, you know, you say it's going to be 5 billion people in the middle class by 2030. And adding a value to those people, doing something for them, helping them do something better or different or creating value for them, I think that's the way uh, you can you can look at becoming financially independent, growing, growth, serving others. That's really, really, I really align with that. I really, uh, you know, 100% agree with you. Uh, also, uh, you know, in 2020, we've had COVID-19 and everybody's been talking about social distancing, which was the wrong message, I think, people send in the beginning rather than physical distancing, right? Social distancing means people are unfriendly. And it happened to me. People became very unfriendly. You go to the grocery store and people are just looking at you in a strange way and people are rude at you. I'm like, whoa, 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 something is happening that hasn't happened before. And I think we have to constantly educate people and go out there and tell them, hey, this is right and this is wrong. And I think educators among today's era are potentially so much needed to go out there and, and help people understand what they should do and what they shouldn't do. The work that you do as an educator, I love your article here and all the people who have contributed to Aftershock. There's so much insight there that if we distill it down, you know, drink it up. I, I think you could be just just a rock star. You could you could do anything. And and thank you so much for for being part of this. I'm I'm honored to be in the list, just like you. Uh, you know, with people like yourself. I know we're heading to the end of our time. I want to ask you your advice to potentially readers of Future Shock, readers of Aftershock, uh, people who are out there, students, young generation, uh, people whose careers have been stalled because of COVID-19. Where does the path go? Give us top three things we should do right now. It could be anything. What should we do to create a better future? Well, number one is what you and your readers may really do. You know, watch this show. Go to a very diverse set of people, but just you know, be be open-minded. Obviously, as you grow older, it's maybe become more difficult. But if you're younger, all of us trying that. So I I was often wrong in my life, and so it's good to challenge yourself and, and question. The second is you don't have to be a math whiz, but it's just very important to go down to the numbers and 
often you see some disconnect in the numbers and it's just, it's not, it's not so complicated as some economists may make it appear. And what I'm trying to do and other things I do, just break it down over to the key numbers, right? The key number in the world is 7.7 .7 billion, 7.8. The certain number for Pakistan, a certain number for the US, a number for Germany, the number is 80 million for Germany. And you can break it down further. It is not complicated to then break and add it up together. And sometimes when you add it up together, you see, oh, there's some disconnect. This guy is double counting the COVID uh, casualties in this county from the discounties. So and that itself is quite new insights and you can almost become an expert. But then the other point that you made uh, before is, uh, yeah, don't, you know, don't do social distancing, do physical distancing. You know, it's very, this is the nice beauty of humanity and balance. People have more time now. They can do their jobs more efficiently on balance and have more opportunities, including the lower middle class in Asia and other economies, much better off than their parents. And they then actually want to use that time. And the best time to use is to sometimes with yourself reading and, and writing, but often with others. They can be across the world. They can be across the village. They can be just across the fence. But thanks to new technologies, we have the opportunity to connect to so many people we have never done before. Thank you, Wolfgang. So three things, you know, uh, educate yourself as much as you can from different sources, books, podcasts, TV shows, not necessarily entertainment, but educate yourself on what's happening in the world. Read a book, one or two books every week, every month, if you can. Number two, pay attention to data, pay attention to numbers, try and understand what they are. There are so many free resources right now to be able to dip your toes deeper, whether it's free courses with Coursera or some online education platform, but you can learn numbers better and understand them better. And number three, communicate with others, build relationships. And you've shared so many different things, but relationships are everything in, in today's era and they will continue to be as long as um, we are human. Uh, Wolfgang, thank you so much for your time. Everybody, please grab a copy of Aftershock whenever you can. Wolfgang, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for uh, jumping on my podcast. You take care. Auf Wiedersehen. Uh, Dankeschön. And we will catch you another time, hopefully, and have another conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Vielen Dank, Ian. Have a great time. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Wolfgang, thanks so much. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com.